Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce in the host chair. Uh, welcoming back uh, Christy Doran after a bout of the spicy cough and a uh, special guest uh, after a big week in Northern Hemisphere rugby, of course, the, the end of the Six Nations and uh, a grand slam for France. Uh, Charlie Morgan from The Telegraph in London. Uh, mate, welcome to you for the first time. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Christy, uh, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm, I'm getting by, I'll tell you. Uh, hasn't been fabulous, uh, the cough. It's really interesting. I was talking to a couple of um, people this afternoon on the phones and, and a few super rugby players who have had it in recent times. It's taken them a, quite a while to come back. And, you know, the fatigue is what's got them. They've, you know, been sick either at halftime or full-time and they simply don't have it in the lungs at the moment. And that's the thing that's just bubbling under the, the surface here and, you only look at Bowden Barrett and he just made comments today, the fact that he too is struggling a little bit. So it's something that we've got to, um, you know, we can't scoff at and we've, we've probably got to take it a little bit more seriousness. But speaking of seriousness, great to have Charlie here. He's even better looking in the, in the flesh than I first thought. I mean, sure the profile's pretty ordinary, doesn't it? I mean, it means it's due for an upgrade. No, it's fantastic to have you on, Charlie. Uh, mate, obviously... Um, great to get an English perspective of, uh, of what's bubbling away up there at Twickenham. Uh, so let's start um, with England, uh, with Eddie Jones, with the RFU statement uh, that was issued on Sunday. I guess some reaction to some scathing comment, uh, columns sorry, from, um, from Stephen Jones for a start, the veteran scribe at the Times, and followed up by Rob Kitson and The Guardian yesterday, another one. Um, mate, just give us a gauge of, I guess, where the atmosphere is at re-Eddie uh, in the wash-up of a I guess a, a Six Nations where they finished third, um, but only had the two wins and, and looked decidedly pretty rusty throughout the whole tournament. Yeah, I think I think to add another one to the reading list there, so, so Clive Woodward's gone in today on the, in the Mail Online, just, just on that disconnect between the reality of what fans are seeing and the lack of progress of, of what fans are seeing and this kind of deluded, yeah, we are from the RFU, we are seeing a clear strategy and the anonymity behind that. I think that's what's really grated fans is that one, they're not necessarily seeing the progress, but two, that that the RFU are just so all in on this, um, on Eddie's um, vision for World Cup 2023 and what that might look like, but actually the, the fact that he feels that the progress is coming behind the scenes more so than on the field at the minute. And I think actually there would be a hell of a lot less heat if there was more honesty around the fact that, yeah, this Six Nations... There are a lot of moving parts to the rebuild that England want to do. Um, but if there was a sense that publicly they were um, willing to go one step backwards, to go two steps forward over the Australia tour over the next autumn and then over the 2023 Six Nations ahead of the World Cup, um, if that was a public admission, I think there would be a lot more sympathy. But the fact that there's this this disconnect and we just keep hearing, you know, it's nearly clicking, it's nearly clicking, especially the attack. Um, I think that's where frictions come in, kind of justifiably so. Is Eddie under any real pressure? Obviously, the uh, the RFU statement, um, albeit from a spokesperson, it would have been nice to, to come from someone uh, perhaps a little bit higher up uh, in the halls of Twickenham there. But um, is he? Is there, uh, I guess there's this push as we see from columnists and former coaches and listing both to... I guess Matt Dawson and um, and Ugo Monya on the on the BBC Five Live podcast through throughout the tournament, um, talking with you as you did there around progress and just not seeing that. Um, 
But is there a genuine push at from some corners to to move Eddie on? Um, not not a I would I wouldn't say so. I think there's certainly a frustration among fans at the minute, and that's exacerbated by this kind of duplicity between the RFU saying that um, what they're seeing is encouraging and, what, and what's happening on the pitch. Just a second consecutive um, campaign where there's only been two wins isn't acceptable. It's happened for different reasons. It's happened because in the first instance, there was a core of players that, uh, playing for Saracens. There was that, that was affected by COVID, the 2021 campaign that we're talking about now. And Eddie Jones subsequently thought that that needed a refresh. Now this next campaign, has come with a really green squad because not only has he refreshed the squad in kind of key positions down the spine and he keeps kind of laboring the point about how 9, 10 and 15, that's how Harry Randall, Marcus Smith and Freddie Stewart, how that's a new, totally new spine for the back line. Um, but also you've got further moving parts, which are the fact that somebody like um, Farrell, Johnny May, more senior figures in the back line, they're out injured. So that stability, an unstable uh, situation has got more unstable and then you also have a new attack coach in Martin Gleeson so that side of the game is has undergone a re a kind of revamp on a couple of levels so what is having to happen is that Henry Slade's come into 12 who's previously been a 13 as that ball as that second ball player to kind of look after Marcus Smith um really interesting what you guys will think of that England midfield actually because that um Marcus Smith and Farrell combination which is what Eddie Jones has been so keen to see that was only seen in one game for 70 odd minutes of that Australia game it had bright moments it had clunky moments but actually there was a bit more structure than we've seen in the Six Nations so I wonder whether um, it'll be reprised in Australia because actually what Jones was saying about there needing to be that really experienced second ball player to look after Marcus Smith has maybe proved a little prescient in the Six Nations because everything it's, it's amazing watching so he, Marcus Smith won his 10th cap on um on Saturday but actually how much has had to come through him has been remarkable you know if you look at so I wrote uh, from uh, from Paris my kind of live piece was on Smith against Antimac and uh, Roman Antimac the, the France fly half who's same age as Smith but he's got 19 more caps and just how he's this quiet facilitator um because everything around him there's this France have this super clear tactical template um, so every, he's just this quiet facilitator of what's going on, whereas Smith has to kind of, you feel like he's forcing things all the time through no fault of his own, really. I, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm thinking, wow, there's so many moving parts at the moment with this, not just the English team, but the English structure with how England wants to play with the domestic competition, with the rise and fall of Saracens. Um, and, and entwined in all of that is the fact that Ireland and, and France have a real um, a belief, understanding of how they're wanting to play. But at the same time, you look at, you know, there's such a big focus on England at the moment and there's a smaller focus on Scotland. But between the three, four nations there, there's not actually, you know, a huge amount in terms of the standings. You look at, like, you know, Scotland winning only a couple of games, Wales only winning one. It's so competitive at the moment, the international stage, but at the, start, at the same point in time, there is a stark difference between the continuity you play between Ireland and France and the rest from the Northern Hemisphere. And that is a deep concern. It has been a concern for some time. And when I think about Eddie Jones, he's always been a, you know, a so-called innovator. And those that know him will kind of know what that means, but he's always looking at what's ahead. And 
a couple of years ago, I think he made that decision in 2020, what was coming, might not have necessarily got it right, but he's certainly not been helped, has he, by the loss of Tuolangi and Owen Farrell. Now, you can't ever put all your eggs in one basket. It seems like he has. But, but could it just be a case that in, in next year, if those guys are there, that you know, things quickly turn the corner? Yeah, completely. The Six Nations is about um, brief moments that bring massive momentum swings and then even bigger reactions off the back of that. That's, that's what the tournament's about because there's because it's an extremely close competition and because all eyes are on it, because it's on free-to-air TV over here and because these rivalries are so intense that you want to have these... Um, you want to you watch a game and have a, have a snap kind of evaluation of a team afterwards. And it just doesn't work like that sometimes. I think over the tournament and then over the tournament, you can still maybe not find out too much about what, where a side's at. And um, England's Six Nations um, started off on a, on a downer because of that. Like, they were actually seriously assured for the first hour against Scotland. And then they melted in the last 20 minutes. There was a moment of madness from Luke Cowan Dickey, which brought a yellow card and a, and a penalty try. And then so the narrative is that they're swimming against the current for the rest of that Six Nations. They went and beat Italy. They were very clunky against Wales, but won that game. And then you've got another big flashpoint, which is the Charlie Ewell's red card against Ireland. And some of that you can't legislate for if you're a coach, right? But the, the comparison you make between Ireland and France is really interesting because Ireland and France have this tactical clarity because they've approach this whole world cup cycling in a different way and what is this the, the second part there are, there are a few strands to what is what what fans are getting frustrated about with jones and, and one of them is this blinkered approach to the to the world cup 2023 and how he's been totally consistent and clear about the fact that england are going to peak there now Ireland and france went about it a different way fabian galtier was part of the coaching staff for france in 2019 so as soon as that tournament, that tournament was effectively a free hit for them, got to the quarterfinal and, and got dumped out pretty controversially. But then after that, what he could do was establish a really complementary um, group of coaches that have, that have just taken this golden generation of players and have established real clarity. What Ireland did on the other, on the other kind of side of the coin, they play totally differently. They're sort of more about phase play pressure and, and keeping the ball in hand, whereas France are about kick pressure and, and just their superb counter-attack off the back of that. Ireland promoted Andy Farrell from inside the setup. He sorted out his group of coaches and they had a horrible, well, they had some horrible results in, in 2020 while they were building towards something, something bigger. And then that clicked and now they look fantastic. And Jones is... If you speak to him in his Zooms, I'm sure you guys are kind of familiar with his sort of, sort of demeanour. He seems pretty chilled out, certainly at the start of them, <laughs> but um, sort of sort of pretty pretty at ease with where England are, pretty at ease with the fact that they've been on the wrong side of a couple of those big flashpoints that we talked about, but actually that they're also, that this attacking system is going to come good. And when it does come good, actually it will be unfamiliar with a lot of, for a lot of opponents that are kind of facing it. Um, because I think also that might be in his head a little bit is that he doesn't want, he's looked at maybe what, how Ireland and New Zealand went at the last World Cup and thought, I want to be pretty unpredictable for what, for what my, for, for teams that are coming against England. Um, so in 2019, that meant Sam Underhill and, and Tom Curry came together that we hadn't seen that combination until the warm up games and it clicked immediately and it was fantastic. Um, so the hope that the attack will click seems to be that hope 
this time, but you're right again, Christy, to bring up Manitoulagi because they just can't, they can't rely on that, I don't think. Yeah, he's clearly uh, England's, well, when we look for a like-for-like -like comparison down here, Christy, at Demo Karevian, what he came back with uh, or brought to the Wallabies when he returned last year in the rugby championship. And, uh, you know, I, I think if those two get go head to head in July, then we're in for a pretty special uh, three weeks. Um, Charlie, I guess, mate, um, just picking up something there, how much is it, I guess, potentially part of that, that bristly mind games, Eddie Jones personality that, um, and I guess his stance on, he's not, hasn't really acknowledged the, I guess the, the England's desire to win a, a Six Nations through this this tournament, whereas you know it's probably lost on on rugby fans a little bit down in this part of the world. Just how much the the championship, as you guys call it, means to the fans up there in the north, and the fact that he's it's all you know. Oh, yeah, we're building to something, and we're not too worried. And you know, it's another loss, but um, but yeah, we're headed in the right direction. Is it as much as? Um, we just want to say, well, well, hang on, we're hurting. You know, that's a Six Nations defeat. This means something to our team, but they're not getting that from him. I think that's a, that's a really good point, and, and I totally agree. It was put to him, I think, by um, Will Keller of the Times on the Sunday. There was sort of a Sunday morning wash-up uh, Zoom call with him, and, um, and Will asked him, said, look, Anton Dupont is crying on the touchline because he's, he's won a Grand Slam. That's how much it means to him. And Joe, Joe said, look, you know, we're not going into these games to lose them it's just that we're taking a maybe taking a longer um a longer term view of things um and there has been i, I think i think flippancy is maybe the wrong word but it's going towards that tone of yeah you know sure we're disappointed at the results but actually the bigger picture is, is the world cup that's that's the frustration because um because Actually, it's slightly inconsistent because when he came in and won the Grand Slam in 2016 and then hold on to win the, champ win the championship title in 2017, um, results felt like the biggest thing then. So then you're flipping it. And, it, and yeah. with Jones, he's now, that's his, that's his seventh, um, seventh Six Nations campaign. And it's been boom and bust. And that is just jarring for England fans, especially if you look at so... Uh, Stuart Lancaster had had four in charge and he was super consistent never won it but he was super consistent and I, I just wonder what you'd whether you trade off those he's won three three titles Eddie Jones which is you know it's not bad no. but it's it's the how much the busts hurt I think that oh, is um Go, go, I just wonder whether or not, you know, you, you make the point, yes, he's won it three times. You know what he hasn't won, though, as a head coach, and that's a World Cup. So, you know, for, for a bloke who's been in the game for an international coach for now 20 years, two decades, I a bit of me goes, and maybe this is because I'm close to Rod Kafer and I respect him a lot and I know he respects him a lot. I think almost a bit of faith needs to be put in him. Um and I also think that you look at that 16-17 campaign and they were spectacular in 16. Every decision turned to gold and, and, and that started, started to lose in 2017. You know, but there was a big overhaul and it took him and it took about a year or so for that to, to kind of transpire. And by 2019, it was starting to hum again. So, I, yeah, I wonder whether or not we do drum this up a little bit because it's, it's Eddie Jones, it is England. You know, only one team can win it, of course, in this Six Nations, and you've got to be very, very good to win that. Um, but, yeah, it, the, it does seem from looking afar that this 
you know, I know I but recognize that you're not necessarily thinking that Eddie Jones is going to get me on the chopping block anytime soon, but could, could it happen sooner rather than later or, or, or how important if he does come to Australia, how important would it be to see progress? Um, could a decision be made even post post Australia? Of course, isn't it? I, I just think that all of their eggs are in, in that basket for, for the 2023 World Cup. And I think that's partly because of a couple of things you've said there, partly because Jones will be burning to go deep in that 2023 tournament. And that is a really big part of the RFU's strategy to get eyes on rugby is, is success at those global tournaments. Um, he has done well. He has done well, hasn't he? He's clearly super diligent with how he prepares for that competition and he clearly comes alive as a coach he keeps talking about with England keeps talking and again this is maybe part of the flippancy about Six Nations is that he's sort of saying yeah look during Six Nations you get injuries and you and you come in with injuries so you're not necessarily going into these top, uh, tournaments picking your best squad he doesn't have that excuse for the World Cup and he's almost looking forward to that he's almost looking forward to the fact that right these are the players I've got I've got them for two months um, for a two month um, period up to the warm-up games, warm-up games, I can play my best side twice and play and maybe do some scenario-based stuff in another couple. Um, I think, I think to, to go back to your question, I think that the, the Australian tour is just, I, I just can't wait for it. It's going to be such an awesome, fascinating gauge of where they are because there are a couple of guys that can add a bit of X factor. So if um, so I'd, I'd expect somebody like Alfie Barbary to come on the tour, who's been around the squad for the whole um, Six Nations without playing, who's just this, this freakish ball carrier, um, which is probably some, something that England have missed. Um, but, and, uh, but as I said earlier, it feels like England are on the, on the, on the edge of unleashing something that, because I'll have to, because I'll have to unleash something I'm, I'm familiar to kind of give them a jolt into the kind of home straight of World Cup preparation. And this tour just feels like it. I, I checked, the, checked the world rankings the other day and it's fifth versus sixth. So it's kind of a, in the, as far as, you know, we can take into them whatever we want, but it feels like a bit of a mid table, doesn't it? Two, two sides sort of um, figuring out what they are um, a year out from the World Cup. And it's going to be awesome. I love the, the drama of those three test series. And the, again, the kind of the narratives that swing over the course of the fortnight is, is just brilliant. And the intensity of them as well should be great. Yeah, it's, well, we know we can't keep you for too long, Charlie. It, it's from an Australian perspective, it feels like oh, I think the Wallabies are around where the French were in 2019. I still think they're quite a few years away, but there's some really good, exciting um, plays in that side. I think England can, you know, there's enough talent in the English squad and those that are unavailable, but they could certainly be a force come 2023 still with their power game. They've still got some world-class players to bring back and Tuolone and Farrell. But you've kind of got guys like Freddie Stewart who have, you know, been in, in the international game for less than a year that look like real trump cards and, and someone like a like an Israel Folau in the air and, and, and those sorts of players don't come around too often. No, no. So, so this is this is part of the moving, the moving parts thing again, and, and re-establishing the spine. I think he, I think Jones was patient with it, and and is being patient with this rebuild because he needs to get that right. And actually, you're right to you're totally right to to mention Freddie Stewart. He's looked to manner born. He's he looked he's looked like a Test match player when he was playing for Leicester as a kind of twenty year old, nineteen year old, and he has just 
he, he just so he's a so unflappable guy really kind of laid back character very honest when in, in interviews and things like that and that kind of translates to just being sort of he was caught he was shifted onto the wing for the france game and um exploited a couple of times of defense not well, cost cost maybe cost one try but other than that did what he said on the tin he won a lot of aerial duels i'm not sure whether he'll be moved across from the wing again because i think he can do a lot of what was effective from fullback yeah um he he will have to kind of develop his link play and stuff like that but the foundations that he's got are special and the other two guys just to more briefly touch on them um marcus smith um at fly half um touched him earlier and harry randall at scrum half um I'd expect a guy called Rafi Quirk to come on tour as well. Um, and those two together can really push the scrum half position forward. And then if you get that happening, you get the infrastructure around those guys, what you have is a fresh kind of sustainable look to a back line. So you're right. You're saying you, the, these guys are potential trump cards, but if they settle and if they're allowed to settle with good infrastructure around them, then England, they're, they're pushing England's ceiling up really, really high. Mm. Dali, before we uh, we let you go, mate, you were at um, the State of France uh, over the weekend in Paris. Um, now, it feels like that this is a, a French team that the, the French people are, are finally behind. We know that uh, French rugby exists very much. Um, the heartland is in the south of the country and, and Parisians being Parisians um, haven't always got behind uh, Le Bleu, um, particularly you know, when, they're, uh, when they're not playing so well. But this is clearly a team that He's playing very well. And when you look at it, I mean, there's five or six guys there that are just about best in class in the world in their position, aren't there? And just talk us through that game on the weekend, what the atmosphere was like and um, and just how good you think this French team is. Oh, mate, it was, it was, you know, it was bucket list stuff, to be fair, being there. It was brilliant from the, from the anthems to... They had, um, you know, when teams get read out at the start of games... They, they had that and they had sort of a strobe light video around each player. Like they were like about to tear to the ring in a, in a raw rumble or a heavyweight boxing. It was just brilliant. And they had that for the coach as well, which is quite funny. So you had that Sean Edwards um, suited it pretty well, but no, they're, they're <laughs> the, the public love them and, and quite rightly so you're right there. So you'd say you'd go through um, that side. And, and as you say, Five, six, maybe making a world 15 at the minute or pretty close. Certainly Dupont, um, Audrey at number eight was brilliant. Fiku, one of the centres. You, you, you start going through these names and, and you think, you know, geez, like Bai at, at Loosehead, uh, Marchand at Hooker. Valencia's kind of a unheralded um, guy as part of that team, but he just does the unfussy stuff so well. He's a big guy, smashes rucks, awesome in malls, but really clever with it, you know. Um, and as I say, tying it all together is this clarity about how they're going to play. They're super patient in the kicking game. So they'll only attack on their own terms, which is, you know, you would, you would think that a team like that with so many superstars and so much X factor and this offloading flair and everything that you could maybe coax them into maybe running too, too deep from their own half or, you know, getting stuck behind halfway and giving up breakdown penalties. No, they just, they will, they, their running meters actually, really just going to kind of revisit it today, actually. But their running meters were way down before the last round on anybody except Italy. Their kicking meters just eclipse everybody because they just that's that's just the kind of ode to their discipline. Now, and that's the, the most dangerous thing, right? Because you've always had France as 
and the offloading flow just kind of comes naturally to them. So that's part of their identity, but the rock solid foundations of, and you, and you have to mention Sean Edwards in that, um, but also Vlock Killers, their, their kicking coach. So those two together have just got this rock solid foundation of kicking pressure, breakdown pressure, and then everything else that puts their kind of inherent attributes in a better place because that's so good. They're, you know, whether they've, I don't know, this, this is kind of World Cup, World Cup uh, cycle theory, but whether they've peaked too early, who knows? I doubt it. I think that's wishful thinking. From that way, the Irishies are burning as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they've been great as well. I, as I say, different, totally contrasting team, and they're, they're tapping into that cohesion of, of Leinster. Uh, that game in Paris was brilliant. But the, so there are just these, these matchups at the top of the tree at the minute. So either Ireland and either Ireland or France against New Zealand, either Ireland or France against South Africa. That seems like the kind of the elite level um, at the minute of test rugby. And then it's whether anybody can like jump, I'd say jump that gap at the minute. It's going to be, it's going to be really interesting ahead of France 2023. Two comments on France down to year 12. Um, you look at all the, the nations in the world and they have a hard runner at 12, a big barnstorming runner, be it Karebi, they previously Martinonu, um, you know, Damien Diolande, uh, Bandiaki at Ireland, and obviously Mart, um, Tuolani at England. When a side doesn't have one of those big ball carriers, they, their structure goes to, to shit. They've got no idea, really. Um, and, and keeping those guys on the field is going to be so important come the World Cup in 2023. The second thing is, France, and, and this plays a part, Dante who, who is a special player, but they are so strong on the ball, so strong on the ball. And that is a, a thing that, you know, right across from 1 to 15 really stands out for France. Oh, so, again, like you, you're, just kind of, you're just kind of picking out star names and, and, and picking out players to talk to about when you, when you, talk, um, when you talk about France. But Villiers, um, their, their little right wing, encompasses that it just encapsulates how that one to fifteen, awesome at the breakdown. He's a seven previous seven specialist and just so hard over the ball. But you're right, Dante. I'd, I'd argue the very best teams in the world at the minute have have two options at twelve. So with France, um, they've got Vakatawa who, who and and the guy called Arthur Vincent. So they could and with Fiku, who's a big dude in himself. You know, they can they can mix and match, and they will always have that presence, that kind of straightening, hard running presence um, at twelve. With Ireland, what they've done over the last couple of games of their um, Six Nations with ha was have Aki starting with Ringrose and then have Robbie Henshaw on the bench. And Robbie Henshaw, fantastic player, really tough as well. In With England, what you've got is Tuilagi, Daylight, and then you're thinking about how else to kind of really balance. Mark, Joe Marchant um, was pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. And it's slightly different. So he, he would be... He would, Mate, he's, he is a 13. He's played 13. He can play on the wing as well. He does that. He makes that switch mid-game a lot of the time for Harlequins. Using him as a kind of a line runner is probably different to what he, well, a lot different to what he does at, at Harlequins because Harlequins have Andre Esterhazen, who's probably one of the one of the guys that South Africa will call on if if Damien Dielendi goes down. Um, but yeah, so so England starting maybe to look towards because I, I just think they want they want a 10 and 12. They, where they might get that go forward is bringing someone like Thokken a singer in as a, as a blindside wing and just having him there to kind of his presence in the midfield. And 
using those back rows kind of creatively from line out strikes and things like that. So England are kind of, if Tuilagi's not there, they're going to have to go about it a different way because Jones just, he's, you know, he's on record as saying, I don't see another game line runner like Tuilagi. So we're going to just have to do things a different way. I mean, who knows what that could think of that. He might even, he might even do something mad, like convert one of those back rows into a 12. He's got that two month period, hasn't he, before the World Cup, we'll see. But they're all, all bets are off, who knows. Well, Charlie, mate, fantastic to have you on. Um, are you going to be joining us down here in uh, Australia come July? I think, I'm not sure, up in the air at the minute. I'll be pushing, I'll be pushing. Well, uh, the first beers are on Christy Doran at the uh, Breakfast Creek Hotel in Brisbane, mate, ahead of that first test, if you do. Uh, really appreciate the time, mate, and uh, good luck uh, following the, uh, the news hounds up there this week. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Fantastic, Christy, to have Charlie on and get that uh, that local perspective of um, a big few days in, in English rugby and uh, and probably a fair bit to play out uh, through the rest of this week and through the back half of their season leading into that uh, that series that we can't wait for come July. Yeah, and, and make sure you follow Charlie on, on Twitter, um, Charlie Morgan Telegraph. Uh, really great insights, one of the best. Analysis. His ana- analysis pieces in particular are fantastic. Yeah, so I you know, check him out, but um, good to join and, and you know, great to have someone that was at in Paris and, uh, and watching it all unfold. Let's talk a little bit of local stuff now, mate. Um, round five of Super Rugby Pacific uh, in the books, obviously, over the weekend. Only four games with one pigeonholed in across the ditch, given the COVID situation over there. The Chiefs belting Moana Pacifica, I think. Probably don't need to spend too long on that. Um, but the three Aussie matches or Aussie base matches, sorry, uh, wins for the Brumbies over the Reds. The force over the Drua via a uh, Bailey Kunzel uh, penalty after the siren. And then, of course, the Waratahs holding off a, a mini Rebels resurgent, I guess, uh, at the back half of, uh, of that match at the SCG. Um, just your thoughts, mate, uh, generally across the weekend there. Oh, I think that... Uh, if, if Dave Rennie, who we'll get to in a moment, spoke on Sunday, it wasn't uh, wasn't asked. But I, I dare say, if you if you ask Dave Rennie the question privately, this is um, how's the standard compare of, of last year? I, I would think that the standard isn't quite there yet. The the round on the weekend that's just gone by particularly wasn't there. Um, the Reds Brumbies clashes were belters last year, and, and unfortunately didn't get anywhere near that. Um, you know, I, I, I tweeted at the time, I thought there was too much posturing going on by the Reds and the Brumbies. There's too much show poning, too many theatrics. You know, the guys haven't, people haven't gone up, and, and let's be honest, it was a pretty poor crowd on the weekend in Canberra. They haven't gone there to watch scrums, and they haven't gone there to watch scrum collapses either. They don't want to necessarily see a slugfest. It's not England against Wales, you know, at zero degrees on a wet track in Twickenham. Um, they want to see the ball played with the backs and once or twice it got out there but, but not nearly enough and there wasn't you know there was no real interplay with the forwards um, so on the whole it was a disappointing and I think that probably stemmed you know from that the, the Waratahs Rebels game wasn't particularly brilliant either it was it was pretty poor and you've got to be brutally honest these guys have to be able to maintain their standards for multiple weeks because we've seen from a Wallabies test alert perspective when they come to the All Blacks, they can't put two weeks together. You know, they've got one good week. And that's the difference between these super rugby sides and the super rugby star players in these teams. They need to be held to a high account. And they really need to look at themselves each week and go, is this what we're offering? Is it good enough? And is it test standard? And if it's not, they need to get better. 
Two quick things on the Reds-Brumbies game. Uh, did the Reds have cause to feel aggrieved there right at the death when uh, Fraser McWright, the skipper, towed that loose pass through from Eray Simone? There was a tug at the jersey from Yuana there um, on the chase back. Uh, probably only robbed him of a step or two, but in the end, was probably the difference between McWright getting there first, getting that ball, or certainly before it, before it hit the pad and bounced back into the Brumbies' replacements' hands. Um, and secondly, uh, Taniela Tupu, uh, headed to the judiciary to challenge his clean out. Um, are the Reds going to be able to get him off that, or do you think uh, he could be set for a, a couple of weeks stint uh, on the sidelines? Um, the first point, I think any other time of the, da- the game, that's a penalty and it's a yellow card. Um, unfortunately, it's the last one of the last plays of the game, and I think you know Damon Murphy doesn't want to make the decision there. He doesn't want to entertain what the team are the same with you know less than a minute to play. I think the, the Brumbies got away with one there big time. Um, secondly, uh, Tanila Tupo, going on what world rugby's mandate is at the moment, I think he's in trouble. Um, I don't agree with it. I don't see it being dangerous. I don't see contact with the head. I actually, in fact, I think it is, it is, it is dangerous, but it was only dangerous. It, it didn't actually constitute and didn't flow into any actual danger because I don't think the head was... Um, contacted with at all uh, and if you start you know penalizing and then red carding players for hitting shoulders I think that's a real concern particularly at the breakdown we already know it's Pandora's box it is as murky as it's ever been and I think any decision on this that leads to two three four weeks of suspension opens up a real can of worms but mate isn't that can of worms already open I mean I go back to that final test of of 2020 between the Wallabies and, and Argentina and talking about a night of many scrums and, and pretty ordinary football, that was certainly it at Bankwest there. Um, and we that was kind of the first real, I guess, um, instances where we saw the clean-out um, punished uh, in this part of the world anyway. I think Hooper, um, Salakai Loto and maybe one of the Pumas players all felt the wrath for, for dangerous clean-outs. Um, looking at that one of Tupus, I just thought there was a little glancing blow off the side of Jerome Brown's head. And how much of it do you think is this action where he starts with the arm down by his side, which is something that they look out for in the NRL since they've moved to outlaw shoulder charges. But on the flip side of that, I mean, what has Tupu actually got then to wrap his arms around when Brown is, um, has got his head buried in the ruck? There's very little body service for him there to, to get a hold of. So is that the only way he can actually, by starting in that motion, to get a grip to, in, I guess, uh, try and effect a, a legal clean-out. This is, as you say, a, a massive can of worms, and I feel like we're already down the road. Yeah, we are. Two points there. Brown actually doesn't get on the ball. You know, I think if, if he gets on the ball with the hands directly on it, I think Damon Murphy blows that up well before he does. He doesn't actually blow it up from stop because the hands weren't on the ball. It allows then Taniela Tupo, who is a long way away, to come charging at the ruck. Thankfully, he comes straight on. He hasn't come from the side. Um, from what I observed, there was no clear contact with the head, and I haven't seen an angle that shows that. But the best way you can get out of this is you reward the person who's on the ball. But unfortunately, he didn't have hands on the ball. So therefore, it allows Taniela Tupo that opportunity to clear him off can he do anything further about it? I don't think so. Not from the position where he's running. If he's there at the time, he can, he can you know, perform various manoeuvres to try to get him off. But 
but he can't play when he's got a split second to react. And, you know, you look at Tanyula there and he actually does come from, you, you can clearly tell that he's going for the shoulder. He's trying to go up and explode him off the ball. I don't see what else he can do at that particular moment. Yeah, an interesting one to watch. Uh, that'll be going down Wednesday night. Uh, the Sanja Judiciary, or Judiciary. I don't know where that French accent came from, maybe because we were just discussing Le Bleu. Um, but we're certainly back in this part of the world. Uh, Christy Wool Park, um, Super Rugby there for the moment. Um, and let's move on to the Wallabies 40-man squad named on Sunday. And then Dave Rennie fronting up for about 25 minutes and, and going through a raft of of questions. Interesting, the one you mentioned there about whether he'd been happy with what he'd seen from Super Rugby uh, didn't come up. But, um, mate, I guess your initial reactions of the big talking points, obviously, Matt Tamua, not named. I wasn't at all surprised by that. I think he's been out of form for, for some time and, and really as long as he's been throwing those terrible cutout balls that we saw at the Rebels late last year and they filtered on into the Bledisloe. And we know he's had he had the trouble with concussion at the, the back end of last year and great to see him back playing footy. But, um in terms of the options that, that Dave has got there and with clearly with Samu Karevi, uh, you know, absolutely, or, you know, have to say guaranteed to be coming back for that England series, um, probably no great shock. No, anyone that doesn't think it's a great shock as, as um, anyone that does think it's a great shock hasn't been watching. And unfortunately, Matt Tamua is just not international standard at the moment. You know, everyone likes Matt Tamua, great guy, good talk, really well liked. Um, has experience and a, and a real advocate and servant for the game. He's on the Rupert board, um, does a lot for, for rugby. Unfortunately, you know, the Rebels have been playing poorly. Um, he hasn't stood out. Um, and, you know, there's other players that are being playing better than that's the long and the short of it. You, you look through that and it's, I touched upon it in my piece. It's pretty hard when you're not picking an overseas player um, to miss out on that because there's 40 of them, you know. Have we got 40 international players there? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I don't think there was anyone that was fortunate to be there. Whether or not a couple of players like Jock Campbell or Jed Holloway, great stories, great to see them there, and they deserve to be in that 40. But there's a big difference between being in that 40 and being in the match day 23. I, I can't see either of those making a Wallabies squad unless Jock Campbell absolutely plays the house down in, in training um, and surprises a lot of people. Um, I just think that, unfortunately, you know, coaches at times look for X factor. They look for a point of difference. I don't know if he necessarily has that international point of difference, but he's a very good super rugby player. And I'm a, Paul Carly touched on it, and I know that I spoke about it over the last month. I'm a big Josh Fluke fan, and I think he'll play a role in the years to come. He, he didn't make it, and he was probably one. Sarah Uru, who's had a really good two weeks, but having a good two weeks, probably need to do that for another month or two. He had a good couple of weeks last year as well, and then seemingly didn't make a huge impression for the last few weeks of Super Rugby, um, the crossover, and, and, and didn't make the squad. So um, there's still opportunity for guys to, to, to make it. You know, no Scott CEO, those sorts of players will be hoping that there's uh, another Wallabies cap around the corner. Yeah, we saw it this uh, this time last year with this same squad. Um, I mean, guys like Tim Anstey and, and Josh Kemeny were named um, and then weren't named ahead uh, of France. And guys like Rob Liotta and, and Andrew Kellaway came in. So there's a lot to change. And perhaps, you know, it's great for us to discuss and, and great for people to get into threads on, on social media and go back and forth with each other. But um, perhaps uh, just a case of uh, let's just pump the brakes here 
for a little while. Uh, one name, though, I want to put to you, Nick Frost. Now, I think I'm a big Nick Frost fan, and I've said that to you before. I like the way he plays the game, and he's come back this year with a little bit more bulk on. But he's in this same situation as, I guess, Brandon Poinga-Ramosa was last year, where he signed to play offshore in Japan, um, but also with the caveat that uh, Rob Leota backflipped on a, on a similar deal last year. And uh, by capping, um, uh, if they were, if Rennie was to cap Frost uh, against England, um, you know, he becomes uh, that little bit less attractive because of the the restrictions that goes with, that go with uh, internationally capped players in the in the Japanese uh, League One and I guess the divisions below that as well. Um, but a fair bit of reaction up in Queensland is, you know, perhaps um, their two locks, uh, Ryan Smith and um, the other fella whose name escapes me right now. Angus Blythe, thank you. And of course, Lucan Salakai Loto missing selection as well. Um, how does that sit with you? Uh, are, are you in favour of having him um, on deck for, for England? Is he a guy that um, you think potentially could be convinced to, to backflip a, a la Leota and, uh, and hang around for the longer term? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that I wrote heavily about in the Sunday uh, for my story in, in the in Fox as well as the Australian. But I asked Dave Rennie just that: Did he hope that Nick Frost would change his mind? Yeah. Because as a former Wallaby in Japan said, maybe Robbie Deans looks at that and goes, "That's not as an attractive deal as I hoped." If he does play for the Wallabies, because it has significant consequences. For, you know, you can only play a couple. Um, to start, and I think it's four in a match day squad if they're internationally capped. For a side like Panasonic, they're wanting big name players and they're wanting absolute guns. And, and if, if indeed Nick Frost is capped, that changes it. Now, a couple of things. Ryan Smith, I'm a big fan of from the Reds. Um, Lucan, I think his stocks went down last year and they see him as someone that they wanted to, you know, to keep and they hoped, but they understood when he decided not, he's going to go. The Reds were desperate to keep Lucan. The Brumbies, on the other hand, <laughs> they've got Neville in the squad as well. Um, I'm a huge Darcy Swain fan, and I think Nick Frost is in that same ballpark, potentially even more athletic, explosive. I think so. So I, I think if Rugby Australia want and hope that he will change his mind, um, I wonder, I, I, I'm backing him too. I don't know if that would necessarily be the case, but this is a guy that's always, you know, he decided to break rank by going to the Crusaders signing when he was still at Knox. Um, he came back after a couple of years there um, to the Brumbies, rejected the Waratahs. The guy reaches for the sky and for the stars. He was, I think, told that he is un, not likely to be in the Wallabies frame this year and was, you know, less and also less likely in 2023. And Rugby Australia was really looking at him post-2024 and they hoped that they could keep him. Unfortunately, other team and other suitors picked him up along the way. But given how Nick Frost has started this year, I reckon RA could come to the table as well because uh, he's a bloke that is just getting better and better. And like all young locks, they take a couple of years to really start to build. And, you know, by the time that they're in their mid-20s, they start to become formidable people. Had a really good game against the Crusaders last year in Christchurch from memory. Nick Frost, and of course, that's a big chance for all those players, isn't it? Um, 
that uh, good games against New Zealand opposition is, is going to count for that that little bit more than than what we've been uh, dished up here in the opening weeks of, of Super Rugby Pacific, and we're we're all looking forward to that, uh, mate. I think that's a, that's a pretty good wrap for uh, this week. It um, it's great to have you back, uh, looking uh, close to 100%, potentially not there just yet, but. Um, Spicy cough behind you now. You uh, you should be uh, right as rain for at least uh, two or three months. Good to, yeah, well, who knows? Who knows? I know that there's a lot of people that are giving a second time, but um, great to join. Good to chat. Please, any questions, send it through. Thanks for the feedback over the last week or two, but good to join and uh, look forward to getting out to another game soon. Absolutely. Catch you next week.